went up through the maze of parked and cruising cars to the bright lit, fly infested restaurant, their faces pleased and expectant as if they were entering a sacred building that loomed up out of the night to give them what haven and blessing they yearned for. They sat at the counter and crossed their legs at the ankles, their thin shoulders rigid with excitement, and listened to the music that made everything so good. The music was always in the background, like music at a church service. It was something to depend on. A boy named Eddie came in to talk with them. He sat backwards on his stool, turning himself jerkily around in semicircles, and then stopping and turning back again. And after a while, he asked Connie if she would like something to eat. She said she would, and so she tapped her friend's arm on the way out. Her friend pulled her face up into a brave, droll look, and Connie said she would meet her at 11 across the way. I just hate to leave her like that, Connie said earnestly, but the boy said that she wouldn't be alone for long. So they went out to his car, and on the way, Connie couldn't help but let her eyes wander over the windshields and faces all around her, her face gleaming with a joy that had nothing to do with Eddie or even this place. It might have been the music. She drew her shoulders up and sucked in her breath with the pure pleasure of being alive. And just at that moment, she happened to glance at a face just a few feet from hers. It was a boy with shaggy black hair and a convertible jalopy painted gold. He stared at her and then his lips widened into a grin. Connie slit her eyes at him and turned away, but she couldn't help glancing back. And there he was, still watching her. He wagged a finger and laughed and said, gonna get you, baby. And Connie turned away again without Eddie noticing anything. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Short Story Short Podcast. Today, of course, I'm here with... Christy Baxter. And Christy, what's our story today? Today, we are talking about Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? by Joyce Carol Oates. Now, this is one of the classic 1960s. Just the emergence of being able to write about both not only true crime, but actually incorporating elements of horror into the mainstream. Yeah, and it definitely has that, it has that, that 60s feel, and it leads with that, you know. And then as you get further along, you, you don't feel like it's going to be horror at first. You get the sinking feeling in your chest, but at the same time, you don't think it's going to be horror at first. But then once the horror comes in, it definitely feels like, almost like the 60s kind of were to the the idea not the reality of what the 50s were the 50s were this bright shining time with you know the the classic two parents and two like boy and girl and white picket fences and then the 60s came along and it was like hippies and drugs <laughs> you know so it's kind of that same idea of like the story is just kind of meandering along through this girl's this teenage girl's life of you know meeting boys and dealing with her parents and her sister and then the horror. And it's talking about it in a way that reminds me of when you hear about, you know, uh, this girl was murdered. She's always the sweet, precious baby angel. And you never get that sort of backstory that, uh, you know, that vapid teenager who was incredibly jealous of her sister. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's always, uh, you talk to their friends and, oh, you know, her smile could light up a room. Can you tell I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's everywhere. God forbid, if I am ever murdered, please, nobody say that. Just please. But anyhow, uh, it, it, there is that cliche, and this definitely turns it right on its head. From the get-go, we are introduced to an essentially unlikable character. I mean, I first read this as a teenage girl, and as much as I could sometimes identify with Connie, I also was like, eh, girl, you gotta, you gotta get right. You know, you gotta you get, get some... <sighs> get some reality, you know, <laughs> like you get some sort of actual solidness to your life instead of just flitting about like nothing is important. And the two really weird things I think are that we are presented with this very, very realistic to something that, uh, I'll just say it, uh, Northern white Americans of the 1960s would recognize as their own. And then you get and then you get Arnold Friend, and it is the broadest, I don't want to say the broadest stereotype of the dumb hick, but it's pretty close. The way, it's... Oh, the way he talks is that she's hammering home, because let's remember, Oates is probably pretty much the waspiest woman you will ever meet. <laughs> I have, have met her, and... Uh, I, I uh, adored her, and she said it was very beautifully dressed. I've told you that story before, but uh, yes, I would agree. She's 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 pretty waspy, as as one semi waspy person. You know, I I can pot kettle, I can do that, I guess. <laughs> but she captures his voice in a way that is so evocative of his position. And in a way, she's making the uh, dichotomy very apparent. There's this very normal, very, uh, you know, not necessarily likable, but very understandable. We get that. And then there's this overall character who is just out there. You know, he's outlandishly sort of down market comparatively. And I think... I think one thing we need to clarify, like I do agree with you that his language does have a very sort of redneck hick kind of tone to it. You know, he's always calling her honey and, you know, the way he talks, it, it definitely has that, that feeling of the, you know, the, the, the you know, he, he starts out with, I, I ain't late, am I? You know, and so like, Right from the get-go, we have that, but there's also, I want to clarify, it's not necessarily what some people might have in mind as dumb hick or dumb redneck. He has a charm and a way of convincing that's almost, uh, it borders on the supernatural. In fact, it actually, I feel, I feel a definite, like there's a definite intentionality of supernatural here. Like it just, it feels like this is not of the norm. And one of the classic, uh, high school essays you write about this one uh, if you go to a progressive high school um, is that it is he's supposed to personify the devil and the the devil in of course in the southern gothic tradition and you could say that this is somewhere along the lines of a southern gothic is that idea that he's presenting this idea of he's sort of he's not super polished but he has that charisma about him and uh, you know I would love to be friends with a less sociopathic version of this character. 
Yeah, he seems like he could be kind of fun. And I have definitely met uh, a couple of incredibly charismatic people that you, you could look at them and you say, okay, objectively not attractive, but that person could, you know, uh, they could talk anybody into anything just with that sheer charisma. And then you add a little bit of sort of, it's almost like radio DJ patter that Arnold Friend uses to kind of almost confuse her and make her, like, knock her off of her game. Yeah. And what I love about the actual end scene, and let's just give it to you, uh, there's a murder? Hmm? Yeah, exactly. That is, and that is one of the things I feel between that and not really knowing, not really... If you're not familiar with the serial killer that, that Arnold Friend is based off of, you don't know when you're reading this. And I can I can say I think I can say that from experience. You don't know. Serial killer is definitely one of the, the options, but other options are like something supernatural, devil, you know, something along those lines. Honestly, one of the other options that's always in my head every time I read it is there's this almost shapeshifty feeling, and I always get to a point when I think, malevolent alien, maybe. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's probably one of the uh, lesser <laughs> interpretations, but I do get that feeling that she was going for that at times. And then as, as far as the horror is concerned and the question of the ending, that's one of those things that I feel like is what makes it an example of horror done right. Because you don't know, unless you know about, uh, what was his name, Charles Schmid? Uh, Schmid, yeah. Yeah, Charles Schmidt, the serial killer that this was based off of. If you don't know that this is based on him, then you don't know what Arnold Friend is. Similarly to the ending, you don't really know what happens. You suspect, you have that feeling in your gut, but it's one of those ambiguous endings that leaves you with the possibility of hope, but not the likelihood. And I think that that is what horror does. The best horror doesn't show you. It lets your mind fill in the blanks. And mm -hmm. we're good at that. We're good at making up worst case scenarios. True. And I love that her, her prose description and her uh, narrative work here is just, it, it's bumping it up while still remaining ambiguous. That leaning against the wall and noticing her back was wet. Well, is that with mm -hmm. sweat or is that with blood? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Arnold Friend was stabbing her with again and again uh, with no tenderness. Yeah, she, she uses that language that in this case, you can't know whether it's literal or figurative because Connie is in such a state of, of confusion and this, this adrenaline-soaked nightmare that she's, she's living in. And I, I do appreciate that she so frequently is vague that the one time when she's explicit, it almost goes right over your head. And uh, I don't know if I can say this. <laughs> Of course you can. <laughs> On the air, but I'm going to go ahead because I'm quoting. Um, when he says, you know, I'll hold you so tight you won't think you have to try to get away or pretend anything because you'll know you can't. And I'll come inside you where it's all secret and you'll give in to me and you'll love me. And that again, it, it's definitely, you look back on that and you're like, wait, was that explicit or was that figurative? What's happening? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things about that is that when Oates plays with that ambiguity, she slaps you at times with overtness that you then make ambiguous. Exactly, yes. I did not, honestly, on my rereading of this, and I've read it a couple times over the years, 
I did not remember it being that overt. And I think that's because my brain was just so used to the ambiguity that it was like, oh, we'll make that ambiguous too. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. I think this is one of those stories that just you have to you have to read at some point to realize that not all horror is slasher and not all slasher is necessarily horror. Um, yeah. It rides that line really, really well. I think one of the great things is this is probably my favorite Oates story, thinking about it. Yes. As far as her, her shorter work is concerned, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's my favorite. It, it just is so, I think I use this term on this show too much, but get used to it because I'm going to keep doing it. It's visceral. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it gets you, I like, and that's the reason that, like, little spoiler alert for the listeners, so far it's been pretty much me picking the, the stories, except for Lust, that was you. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's the stories that I pick is the ones that stick with me and they stick with me because they're visceral. So it's just kind of like a, you know, natural mm -hmm. thing that's going to happen is I'm going to say visceral at some point. And when I say it, you can go ahead and drink. <laughs> and I think visceral actually in this case is really important because of the ending and its ambiguity. Yeah. But we have been brought to that point, that visceral feeling turns the last line into something that is, again, sort of slapping you in the face, uh, uh, so much land that Connie had never seen before and did not recognize except to know that she was going to it. I we, got chills just hearing that again. Yeah, we know that she's dying, yeah. but at no point in the other does it indicate that. And, then, and also the phrasing is, again, it's that ambiguity that could be literal. And that literalness that could be ambiguous and you don't know. And to end it on that note, on that note of the land that she's going to. Okay, well, if you're, uh, you know, I guess if you're a glass half full kind of person, then she's just going to go for a ride in the car. And if you're a glass half empty person, she did. <laughs> like, that's that. <laughs> so I'm a, uh, I'm a glass half murdered person. And yeah, she was murdered. Uh, <laughs> I think there's no question. I think that she has presented one of the truly most evil characters in Arnold Friend. Yes. Yeah, and I think part of that is, and at the same time, you know, we had other characters popping up. Uh, at that point, the big ones were your uh, Ed Gein-like characters. So uh, Anthony Perkins in Psycho comes to mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you also had, uh, at the exact same time, sort of bubbling up, you had Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. You mm -hmm. had... Uh, sort of the Robert Block type of stuff that was happening at the same time, um, speaking of Psycho. So you had these sort of characters that were presenting this new idea of what evil is and bringing it into a more grounded here and now time. And I think this is really a key point where that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And not to, not to get too far into the true crime zone, but that this, the time period when this was set was definitely that time period in which everything kind of all these developments both in media and in you know police work and forensics converged with each other to make it so that all of a sudden all these serial killers and all these like personifications of evil are getting caught and their faces are being blasted across every television and so it was so part of the the public's like consciousness that yeah something like this it definitely would hit home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, it still does, you know, how many years later? Yeah. 
Definitely. Well, that is great. And so overall, I think this is a story that is not for the week of tummy. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm planning on having some nightmares tonight, which uh, I knew what I was getting into. But hey, this kind of, it kind of does fit with Halloween month, even though I didn't do that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> just, it was just the next story that I was like, we have to do this one. <laughs> Excellent. Well, great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. Short Podcast.